0: Tonight I'll be preaching from the book of 1st John, 1st John chapter 5, for the preaching of God's word, 1st John chapter 5, and I trust you'll find your places there, and I'll be reading verse number 1 and 2, 1st John chapter 5. Verse number one. The Bible says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him, that begat loveth him, also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his Commandments. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us and for being a great, wonderful, merciful God. Dear Lord, we are so undeserving of your goodness, but we are grateful for your ever present love towards us. Thank you so much for demonstrating that in such a sacrificial way when you sent your Son to this earth to die on Calvary's cross. Lord, and I pray that as we reflect upon your love, that it would motivate us to love you more and to love those around us. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege we have once again to open the pages of your word and to hear what you have to say to us pray so that we would apply it to our hearts and lives and watch you bless us as a result of our obedience to what you say to us. Thank you once again. Take full control of your divine way. Give me the words you love me to say cleanse me of sin and empty me of self. Fill me with your precious Holy Spirit that I may preach what thus said the Lord. And we'll be careful to thank you and praise you for what you will do, how you will use your word in our lives. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. The trial of the 20th century was in no doubt the trial of O.J. Simpson for the murder of Mr. Brown and Miss Simpson. Those of you who were alive would be well aware of the high-profile nature of this case. This trial grabbed the attention of the entire world for several months as the drama unfolded for all to see. The eventual acquittal of Mr. Simpson was largely due to the strategy of his legal team to raise reasonable doubt regarding the evidence that was presented. A very famous moment unfolded in this case when Johnny Cochran, his lawyer, had the defendant try on a glove that appeared to be too small and then on the basis of this occurrence, he then proclaimed, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. This case underscores the significance that evidence plays in the verdict of a case. Christian life is a life of blessing. Amen. It's a life of supernatural transformation. For those of us who name the name of Christ and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are born again. We must understand that salvation and this supernatural conversion, my friend, is the miracle that's performed by God himself. It's a miracle that's based on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That miracle takes place on the inside and ought to manifest itself on the outside with evidence that proves what took place within. John One of Jesus' 12 disciples speaks to this throughout this entire epistle of 1 John. And we have seen for several weeks and months now that the underlying theme in this book is that of Christian distinctiveness. Christian distinctiveness. In other words, a believer, a child of God, ought to have some characteristic Features, if you will, about their life that categorically proves that that person is born again. Amen? I've dubbed and labeled this series the Christian's signature because a signature identifies an individual. I went to the bank a few weeks ago and they asked me to sign my name, or to write my name, which I thought that's what it was about. I was trying to get another checkbook. And I just wrote my name, forgetting that they were actually asking me to write my signature. And as I was preparing to leave, they called me back and said, "Uh, you wrote your name in an uncharacteristic way. It was not how you would normally sign a signature. And I'm like, oops. And I had to rewrite my name to authenticate who I really was. A signature is very important, my friends. And when we as believers, uh, uh, through proclaiming who he is, uh, output or produce a signature that is not characteristic of a believer, we cause confusion In the name of Jesus Christ. And so we are to understand very clearly, my friend, that a believer ought to be distinctive. In chapter 5 of 1 John, the apostle speaks to a number of proofs or evidences, if you will, that should show up in every believer's life. And we began looking at this last time and began with the first one, And just to recap, we call this conversion through the Savior. We'll see this for some time in the weeks to come as well because uh, this is found in verses 1 to 6. And we began looking at this and made the observation that conversion is about a change. It's about a transformation. And we observed, first of all, in verse number 1, that this conversion that comes through none other than Jesus Christ, my friend it's a decision that is personal. A decision that is personal. It says, whosoever does what? Believeth that Jesus the Christ is born of God. Notice that this decision is one that is universally accessible. God never eliminated a certain set of people from being able to make this decision. It is available to whosoever will. It's universally acceptable. Notice But Thank God, it is available via an uncomplicated approach. Amen? It is not difficult to be born again. He says, whosoever does what? Believeth. That belief has to be sincere. That belief has to not just be based on a head knowledge, but it has to be based on a heart belief. Uncomplicated approach, but notice that there's an undisputed authority whosoever believe it, that Jesus is the Christ. My friend, there is no other way to get to God but through Jesus Christ. There's no apology to be made for that, my friend. But this is a decision that's personal and that decision brings about conversion. But notice further, there's a divine process. It says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Born of God. My friend, salvation is all of God. It's a spontaneous process, it's a supernatural process. And I'm so glad that salvation is not up to me. It's not up to you, my friend. If it were up to us, we would fail every single time. Thank God it's a divine process. But let's continue looking at this aspect of conversion. And I want you to observe with me in the second half of verse number one, what I call, there's a devotion that is past. There's a devotion that is past. Notice what, what John says. He says, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now there's a word that occurs in this verse repeatedly, multiple times, well twice, but it's very important because my friend, as we've seen throughout this book of 1 John, that our salvation that we have received the response that we are to live as a Christian life to others, it's all based on love. It's based on love. Notice what this verse says. Everyone that, what? Loveth him that begat. Who did we love who begat? God the Father. He's talking about love for God. My friend, when you think about your salvation, the reason why it ought to do something to our hearts is because we recognize that God loves us. And God created us for relationship with himself. You ever wonder why God would love you? You ever wonder why God would love me? When you really think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that God would love us. When we see humanity's rebellion against God, when we think of God's mercy and grace shown to man, even in man's rebellion, when we think of the plan of salvation, and the fact that God would bankrupt heaven and send his son to this earth to die on Calvary's cross, my friend, the love of God manifested to us ought to move our hearts. But here's what that love ought to do it ought to prompt us to love him in return. Amen. First John chapter four and verse 19 says, "We love him because He first loved us." My friend, never ever take the love of God for granted." But I want you to notice something else here in relation to this devotion that is past it's not only based on love, but notice what I describe as a beautiful link. Now, this verse uses the old English word here of begat, that one that has, I guess, become foreign, you know, common use in the English language. But here's what John is saying. He says, everyone that loveth him that begat, that's God, the Father, loveth him also, that is begotten of him. So what is John saying here? Remember, if you're getting confused with the word begotten in this passage, go back to John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, what? Begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what John is simply saying here, everyone that loveth him that begat, who did the begatting? <laughs> See, it sounds so strange, right? God the Father, right? And God the Father begat God the Son. And so he's saying everyone that loveth God the Father is going to naturally love the one begotten of him who is God, the son. That sounds very logical. That sounds very practical. He says, if you love God, the father, mark it down, you are going to love God, the son. We should be able to understand that. Can you imagine you coming to my dad and you saying, Pastor Maynard, but I just love you. I mean, I love you. I love who you are, man. I love. I mean, your passion. I love. I mean, everything about you. But that pastor went, but I can't deal. I can't stand him. What do you think his response should be to you? What what, what do you think? No, anyway, some of you saying, Pastor, I did that already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was a joke. But but, but that's not a logical response. You can't expect to get a nice response. I mean, you love this person, but you just hate their children. You can't expect to get a nice response. Amen? John is saying, listen, if you love God the Father, you are going to love God the Son. All of us know that parents are very defensive of, we are very defensive of our children, aren't we? Y'all really quiet in here tonight. But here was John's simply getting, seeking to get across to us. That you cannot divorce Jesus from the plan of salvation. Jesus himself spoke to this while he ministered in, uh, on the earth. Look at John's gospel, chapter 16. And look at what Jesus was pointing out. Uh, John understood this clearly and he spoke so much about love not only in First John, but also in the gospel as well. But look at John's gospel, chapter 16. Look at what he says. These things have I spoken unto you, that he should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service, and these things they will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus is saying, listen, if you know me, you're going to know the Father. If you love the Father, you're going to love me. And there's a link that's indisputable. He says the devotion will be passed on the love you have for God the Father is going to naturally be passed on to God the Son. Conversion is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent this Son to this earth to die on Calvary's cross for our sins. And my friend, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Make no mistake about it. Conversion must be through the Savior. But notice tonight, not only the devotion passed, but I want you to notice verse number two, which I, I call definite proof. Look, at he emphasized this point once again, and he says, by this, by the fact that, that, that you love God and you love the Son, by this we what? Know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. What what are we talking about here? We're talking about the aspect of evidence, of proof of being born again. My friend, this aspect of conversion takes place on the inside, manifests itself in love for God, and simply a desire to do what he has said. But don't forget that it's all based on love. My friend, it it is so important that we understand that what we do for God are not to be by constraint. We are not to serve God uh, week after week, month after month with this uh, feeling of, oh, well, they expect me to do it, so let me go ahead and show up. Listen, you ought to be motivated and fueled by love for God. Listen, when people are in love, you don't have to push them and prod them to get to, to do things and so when there is a, a restraint and when there is a constraint is a sign of a lack of love for God himself and the proof is in demonstrating it Loving God and doing what he said. My friend, when it comes to this thing of serving God, what God says ought to matter. If what God says doesn't matter, that's a major, major red flag. If one's attitude is, listen, I couldn't care less what God says, you ought to be concerned. You say, Pastor, that's just somewhat overreacting, is it? Not at all. If what God says doesn't matter, here's what that's an indication of very possibly. Before I tell you the answer to that, think with me of this. There's some things that we know about dead people. What are some of these things? Dead people can't hear. Dead people can't see. Dead people can't feel. Dead people can't smell. Dead people can't respond. So when someone is physically dead, guess what? They don't move. They don't respond. If someone is proclaimed to be dead and all of a sudden they start moving, listen, we'll be shocked and scared out of our wits. Because after all, they have been declared as dead. What's the principle to be drawn? Unresponsiveness to God's word could very well be a sign of spiritual deadness God speaks can't hear God says move no response God says look at this can't see I want you to turn back in closing tonight to Ephesians chapter 2 Because this is a very, very instructive and it ought to be enlightening passage when it comes to this aspect of Christian living and what God would have done in quickening us, making us alive, alive to righteousness, alive to holiness, and how that manifests itself in holy Christian living. It's not about working up yourself to decide what to do, to do right, even though you must make a decision to stand for God. But look at verse number one. We looked at this last time, and we're looking at it once again, but we're going to look at some different verses tonight. But look at verse number one, because that verse is so critical. It says, and you hath he what? Quickened, made alive. This is a spiritual new birth, who were what? dead in trespasses and sins so without this quickening by God himself my friend we were all spiritually dead couldn't respond couldn't move couldn't see couldn't hear but God based on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ made us alive he describes in the following verses what that deadness was like prior to this quickening process but drop down with me to verse number six and look what ought to be the response to being made alive and hath what raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus my friend these heavenly places that you are ought to be in, it's not talking about physically heaven, it's talking about living here on earth in holiness. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith that not of your salvation, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Look at verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. My friend, this process of new birth and walking in holiness is a work of almighty God. All of it is because of grace and mercy of God. I mean, raise us up together to sit together in heavenly places. While so many believers are wobbling in wickedness. there's something wrong. My friend, even if somehow you are to find yourself in wickedness and in depravity in, 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 in of sin, listen, something in you ought to be awakened and say, I got to get out of here. This is not the place for me. I've been made alive. But shockingly, so many believers seem like whatever it is that they've gotten down to that place, but they're just comfortable, man. I'm at home, man. Let me put my feet up. I, I listen, to, I'm in my rocking chair in the muck and mire of this world. My friend, check yourself. John says there's definite proof. And when that proof doesn't manifest itself, it's time to do some checking. It's time for some analysis, some assessment. Because guess what? John is saying the first proof of salvation is conversion conversion implies a change to convert means you can't be the same we throw around these words all the time and sometimes we forget what they actually mean i've been born again i've been converted From what? From a life of sin and debauchery and depravity. Well, how you could still be in the same thing if you've been converted? And at the very least, how can you be comfortable in it while converted? John says, proof, proof, evidence of salvation is based on conversion that happened through Jesus, where God did a supernatural miracle on us, made us alive, quickened us. We were dead. Incapable of doing anything that pleased God. And God made us alive unto good works. And even the production of those good works are based on him working in us. We are his what? Workmanship. So no matter how long you've been saved, and you realize that you're not the person who you used to be, don't walk around and pat yourself on the shoulder. You're His workmanship. He's producing maturity in us. It's all a work of Almighty God. Thank God for salvation. Thank God for His love that brought that about. Unless. Seek his face in helping us to be more like him each and every day. And let's thank God that we may not be exactly what we should be, but we're not what we used to be. Thank God for his mercy and for his grace.